we're made to love and be loved and to belong and to be accountable to other folks and to, you know, we're wiser together than on our own. So let's figure out ways that we can share money together, ways that we can uh, do meals with other people, that we can celebrate the highs of life and we can carry the burdens together. Welcome back to Passionate Pursuits. I'm your host, Bridget Corns. This week, my guest Jane Claiborne and I talked a lot about intentional community and how we can benefit from doing things in the company of others who are already living those things out in the world. This is the idea spark that has fueled the new direction Quern's Coaching and I will be taking in the new year. All the exciting details will be in my newsletter coming out next Monday, December 11th. You can find the link to subscribe in the show notes below. Today, I have the privilege and honor of Shane Claiborne joining us. Shane Claiborne is a prominent speaker, activist, and best-selling author. He worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and also founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. He heads up Red Letter Christians, which is a movement of folks who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. Shane's a champion for grace, which has led him to jail, advocating for the homeless, and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. And now grace fuels his passion to end the death penalty and help stop gun violence. And I'm just going to say, Shane, it is wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much for joining me for this interview today. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's good to connect. And thanks for listening, everybody. Glad to be here. Yeah, for sure. So I've met a lot of people who talk about fighting or defeating areas of injustice. Um, But in this, I find like they're using the language of the oppressor. And when I met you and when we got the chance to visit your community, I have to say I witnessed what I'm calling this radically active grace that speaks a different language, that speaks a language of love. And I'd just love for you to to tell me more about that. Oh, that's so kind. Uh, there, you know, there's that old saying uh, in uh, battling the monster, don't become the monster. Or, you know, mm-hmm. when you battle the beast, don't become the beast. And I think we see um, a lot of kind of fighting injustice and becoming um unjust as we do it so I've, I've always been a big believer that our our means have to reflect the end that we want and of course there's many great uh mentors from my life and also from history i think in that you know uh, uh gandhi and dr king certainly uh, came to a conviction that um we we can't build a better world using the same uh, tactics of violence and superiority, moral superiority and things like that. So, that, you know, a humility, um, a sense, as Henry Nouwen said, I think uh, so well, he said, if we look closely, we can see in the hands of the oppressors, our own hands mm-hmm. and in the face of the oppressed, our own faces so like we we all have our own wounds and scars that things that were that have shaped us but also that we are healing from um and we all have the same capacity to do violence or to do good and um uh you know when we see someone who 
kills or does something hateful, we we know that we are capable of of that ourselves. And when we see something doing, uh, someone doing beautiful, redemptive, healing work in the world, we know that that's in us too. So, yeah, that's always been a part of, uh, I think, our our vibe and ethos here in in, in our neighborhood. Uh, the idea that we're wounded healers, and it also is like kind of redefines how we think of our uh, validation or credentials, you know, like, um, mm -hmm. the, the things that we've survived are not necessary are not things that we need to be ashamed of, but they're things mm -hmm. that actually, um, give us tools and equip us to help others that might be, uh, coming out of the same struggle. So the best folks to help someone coming off of heroin is someone who's, uh, been sober for a few years or a few days even, mm -hmm. you know, to walk with those uh, folks, the best folks to help someone coming out of domestic violence is someone who's familiar with it. And, and, and so uh, that, that idea that we're kind of wounded healers. And I mean, that's a part, it's kind of ingrained in the recovery community in general, you know, but mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of us have models of charitable work that is much more professional and has a distance and, I don't know. That's not my favorite style, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, that is definitely probably one of the biggest things I witnessed in, in visiting. So I visited raw tools, Philly, but we got to walk around and see the work of the simple way and, and get to meet your neighbors, which was just um, such a beautiful experience. But in being there, that was the biggest thing that struck me was that you're, you're holding a space in this community you're, you're right there with them. And, and it was just so integrated and so loving. Um, it's, it's like nothing I've ever experienced before having been in, in a lot of, you know, I grew up Christian and, and I've been in a lot of circles where people are doing charitable work. And this was the most, um, connected I've ever seen that work being done. Yeah. Well, there, there's some things that, uh, uh, you know, just like we do a lot of gardening. So some some soil is uh, better equipped for gardening than other soil. And I think in some ways, um, our neighborhood has uh, good soil for community. And, and a lot of neighborhoods that are economically impoverished are community rich. And I think the opposite is also true. A lot of places that are rich economically are often poor when it comes to community and relationships. Um, and so uh, a lot of that's, you know, our, our roots in our neighborhood have literally been grown over 25 years. So those are pretty deep roots of staying in a place for a while and, um, and, and building on that community that has its own resilience, you know, and has been, uh, really neglected by a lot of social structures and priorities of our city and, you know, companies that moved out of our neighborhood. So the, you know, the neighborhoods had to come together. And, and, and we've seen that over and over, you know, when we had a massive fire over a decade ago, our whole neighborhood came together to rebuild that block and to stabilize a uh, hundred families that were affected by that fire it was a massive you know inferno that burnt down our block so all that you know it, it kind of is a continual reminder that that these communities are 
really vibrant um, and and take care of each other well. Half of my neighbors, you know, have extended family or folks that are struggling to make it that are crashing in their houses. So mm -hmm. uh, in, intentional community is what we called it. But a lot of our neighbors do that naturally. Hmm. I love that. How did you learn that you were the kind of person suited to this way of, of living and being? I grew up in, uh, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, in, in a, you know, a kind of Christian subculture that was very much about um, listening to God and finding your calling on your life. And, uh, and some of the ways that that took form in my own life was almost like you need to go into a closet and pray and you'll mm -hmm. hear this, you know, divine revelation that, you know, God wants you to be a uh, uh, surgeon or something like that. And that's not exactly what happened for me. Um, I find that uh, as my friend, Brian McLaren says, you, 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 uh, you make the path by walking it, you know? And I mm -hmm. found that like one of the Bible studies I did actually, that was quite good. Um, said you, just the opposite. Don't just try to listen to God in a vacuum as if the whole world revolves around you, but get out. Uh, into the world and you will hear God as you, so it's kind of like exercising, you know, you, yeah. you don't just sit around and read books and watch videos on exercising. <laughs> you actually have to do it. So, um, you know, for, for me, uh, that's why I went to India, you know, to work with mother mm -hmm. Teresa. I went wherever I saw like beautiful glimpses of redemptive work. I wanted to learn from it, participate in it, be a part of it. And then that kind of, um, is how I found found my own way. You know that that uh, one of Mother Teresa's powerful lines was, "Calcuttas are everywhere, if mm -hmm. we we'll only have eyes to see." So you know you go to India sometimes to realize that, um, you know it, it's easier sometimes to do missional work for people on the other side of the world than it is on the other side of town. So we came back kind of really going, yeah, so what's this look like for us? What's it look like in Philly? How do we do it? Uh, and uh, uh, But a lot of that is about having kind of a sense of place and community. I think we discern, we become wiser. You know, we we find our way by by bouncing ideas off of other people we trust. So mm -hmm. when it came to things like writing my first book, even you know, my decision to get married and things like that, I, I, I kind of felt these nudges and I would uh, get a circle of friends around and say, hey, will you pray with me? Will you talk with me? Ask me questions about this, this is what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. But that, and that that was really helpful. That's interesting uh, that you say that. I, I hear a lot over and over repeated as I do these interviews that community is so vital to hearing God's voice. And, and to discerning the path that, that we are to walk. And um, it just reminds me of uh, the book I have on my shelf. Um, and now I'm going to go completely blank, but it's about, oh, it's Parker Palmer, A Hidden Wholeness. And it's about those clearness committees. And, and the goal of them is just to bring individuals together to ask questions. And there's one yeah. person who gets that, yeah, who gets the questions asked. And that sounds yeah, that's really it. it's a really yeah. rich tradition, you know, in the 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 Quaker, the Friends tradition, yeah. which is I, you know, I didn't grow up in that one, but um, I, I've learned a lot from different 
uh, streams of mm -hmm. faith and especially of Christianity. And, and the, the Quakers do this wonderful job of listening. And so that's exactly where this idea of we called it a clearness committee, you know, mm -hmm. that would come together. So I've that's one of the treasures of the uh, uh, Quaker tradition that I've I've taken to heart. So whenever you hear what the Quakers would call a query, right, a, a nudge or sort of something stirring in you, uh, then you really lean into that and you explore it. But there's also wisdom in having some folks around you. So, for instance, when I wrote my first book, I mean, you know. I didn't know if anybody buy it. So I knew my mom would buy a lot of copies, but, I didn't, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, but it sold, you know, a, a lot of copies. And um, that clearness committee helped me uh, make a decision to create essentially a foundation where that money would come mm -hmm. in and we call it the Jubilee Fund. And, and in fact, in the back of the book, we list about 200 different wonderful groups that have been a part of my own journey and in, in many ways are you know this book came out of that uh, those relationships and so we share that money with those groups that's probably even closer to 300 now you know or whatever that we but all that you know and that that wisdom i also think you know some of this we miss but it's it's there like you, you know and i know not everyone listening uh you know comes from christian faith or any faith at all necessarily but uh, you know, one of the things that Jesus said to the disciples was wherever two or three of you gather in in my name, I'm with you. So there's this real sense that like this is a community calling. Jesus modeled that, you know, even when God makes the first human in the book of Genesis, it, it says it's it, it's not good to be alone. So that's part of what uh, the good news is that we're not alone in the world. And yet I think we've created this sort of. Uh, um, cultural idol out of individualism mm -hmm. and independence that um, sometimes community is like it's it, it's sort of like exercising muscles that have atrophied a little bit you know mm -hmm. so it can feel awkward to, to have something like a clearness committee like what, what is that you know I can make my own decisions I you know whatever so um, but I think I think some of this is just going we're, we're made to love and be loved and to belong and to be accountable to other folks. And, to, you know, we're wiser together than on our own. So let's figure out ways that we can share money together, ways that we can uh, do meals with other people, that we can celebrate the highs of life and we can carry the burdens together. So that that's, I think, you know, what, what community is really about. And just like when you're a teenager, you hear about peer pressure as kind of a, usually a negative thing. I yeah. think there's the, the flip side of that is that, community is the beautiful side of that which is surrounding ourselves with people that we want to be like you know and, and mm -hmm. so you become more generous by hanging out with generous people you become more cur courageous by hanging out with courageous people because courage is contagious and mm -hmm. so was fear you know and so was narcissism and cynicism those are all like kind of uh toxically contagious things in our culture too yeah yeah absolutely um, if you were to look back at kind of where you were and who you were when you first got those like stirrings and felt that nudge, what did you do with it then at that point? Because I think that's something that a lot of us lose sight of as we walk this path, you know, as we get further and further down the path, it's really hard to see back. It gets kind of foggy of what did we do? How did we make that decision? What did that feel like in that moment? 
a, a lot of things, I think we, we, we focus on the finality of them and it's a little bit more, well, one of my mentors said the hardest part of running a marathon isn't getting to the finish line. It's getting to the starting line. You know, it's like mm. getting your body, getting your body moving so you can eventually uh, run a marathon. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I look at a lot of the things that give me, um, a ton of life right now, um, interacting with folks that are incarcerated. I mean, those are things that like, how do you even get to the starting line on that? And I found that you, 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 you find people that are already doing it, you know, like there's an organization that has a list of everyone on death row um, and Mm -hmm. specifically, you know, puts an asterisk by the folks that don't have any, you know, family or, or visitors. Um, and, and there's groups that are already going inside correctional facilities and, and things like that. So, you know, some of this is like, we don't have to do everything on our own. Um, a lot of what we do both within our local work at the simple way here in Philly and also our, our larger work with red letter Christians is collaborations. You know, we, 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 we talk about co-conspirators, you know, people that we, we, um, plot goodness with and do do this sort of holy work with so i think a lot of it is about becoming a part of what other people are doing and building stuff together uh with folks that are directly impacted by some of these things and whether that's you know the escalating violence in the middle east or uh if it's you know immigration um welcoming immigrants in our own country you know those are things that like we're building broad movements that are doing that work but in the end it's also about each family making room in their house and in their heart for a foster kid or for an immigrant family or you know like um and and a lot of the big decisions that um i i've made for instance like we went to iraq during the the initial onset of the war after september 11th after the attacks and um uh that in new york and dc and then that grief kind of began to to um i think be exploited and also just be unhealthily channeled into more violence and we saw the the war in iraq and afghanistan so a group of us went to iraq and afghanistan i went to both of those countries um but it was with a group of people and it it was with a heck of a lot of discernment you know of thinking and not just calculating the risks, but going, um, you know, is, is this where we need to be at this particular time? And is it this the the best ways that we can love right now? And that's always a question mm. I kind of keep coming back to is what does love require of us? You know, what what is love um, loving our neighbor look like? Or even in this case, you know, loving our enemy. What does that look like? Um, yeah. And um so those, those are big decisions, but I made those, even that decision to go to Iraq, I had a, a clearness committee, you know, I had also two mm-hmm. friends that uh, I already knew that were going over to be a part of essentially um, standing against the war, volunteering in hospitals. And it was very similar to what's happening in Gaza right now. Um, at the time we went, there were 900 bombs a day that were being dropped um, mostly in Baghdad. And that's where we were. So we saw horrific things, Uh, but there was a sense of, I think, um, uh, deliberation and a sense of this is really 
um, where we're meant to be. And we had doctors and nurses and pastors and veterans and all kinds of different people that were a part of that team. Um, and I probably wouldn't have just been able to muster up the courage or resources or even been as as careful and wise as I should have been if I had done that on my own. So I'm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, grateful that we had three different groups that were all collaborating for that uh, presence in, in uh, Iraq and, and uh, later in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of that's one of the biggest takeaways I'm going to have from this is is you talking about finding others who are doing it already. Because what a what an interesting and unique way, especially right now, I think, to look at doing the work. So many people are branching off and trying to start things and do things on their own. You know, I'm me included. I think a lot of us who who feel drawn and called to to doing this this kind of work, showing up, you know, in the most loving way we can in the world, feel like, all right, I gotta make this work. I gotta do this on my own. I gotta power ahead. And and yet there are so many individuals and organizations who have pulled the resources or the talent or the wisdom, you know, who you can reach out to and find and partner with. I think that's a really huge um, point to, to take home. Yeah, well, good. And I, I the, the other thought, um, you know, Frederick Beekner had some great things to say. He was a writer. And uh, w one of the things that Beekner said is, um, my paraphrase of it is, we've got to take our deepest passions and connect them to the world's deepest pain. Yeah. And, you know, we're all, we all have different skills. We have different uh, passions and um, things that we picked up or learned or been trained in. And I think that uh, connecting those to other people's liberation and, you know, connecting those to the suffering and the pain of the world um, is where we kind of find the difference between just a job that pays the bills and mm. a really meaningful kind of vocation or calling. And that's why, you know, one of my friends often says that uh, um, the the most important question isn't just what are you going to do, but who are you becoming? Mm. And then the question is not, am I going to be a lawyer or a school teacher or a landscaper, but what kind of landscaper or school teacher or lawyer am I going to be? And how can I use the passion? And I mean, something even as simple as crocheting. We have these elderly folks that take plastic bags, you know, that mm, used to get like yeah. the, the gro grocery store target or whatever, and they weave them and crochet them into these pads that they make like and they give them to us a hundred at a time you know that are uh can be given out to folks that uh may not have homes and they're insulated they're weatherproof and they're um uh they're lightweight to carry so i mean all of this just came out of connecting to folks that are struggling and thinking what might i have to to offer and what I might, what might I be able to learn, you know? And, and so I think those are, those are, there's a million different variations of that story. You know, I think of my, my friend, Brian Stevenson, that's a lawyer defending folks on death row down in Alabama. He started the equal justice initiative and he's African-American man that uh, came out of Harvard. He also went to the same undergrad that I did, mm. um, but, you know, could have gone anywhere, but he saw 
one of the most desperate places for good lawyers um, is Alabama and particularly death row. Um, and that that's what he set out to do. He, be, wow. you know, started defending minors and um, folks that were, um, uh, you know, like charged as kids with excessive punishment. Um, and he, he started defending folks that, um, you know, were, were likely found guilty because of the color of their skin. And, um, and, and, and uh, so he's one of the best lawyers in the country, you know, and at one point time magazine went down and they interviewed him. He was listed as like, one of the most influential people in America and folks uh, called him America's Mandela, you know, and so he's, they're down there talking to him. He's in like a little apartment with a soccer ball and <laughs> they're like, you know, you're graduated with honors from Harvard. Uh, why, why would you be this kind of lawyer? And Brian's response was brilliant. He said, why would I not be this kind of mm -hmm. lawyer? You know, our, our criminal justice system treats you better. This is Brian's line. If you are, uh, rich and guilty than yeah. if you are than if you are poor and innocent and uh and so he's you know set out to dedicate his life to changing that and um so there are things that are more important than money and i think that's where you know a lot of us get distracted is by this kind of upward mobility and um you know working our ways up and um i heard a pastor once say if we find ourselves you know climbing the ladder of upward mobility, we better be careful or else on our way up, we might pass Jesus on his way down. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, kind of pointing out that it's funny, uh, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I, but I think that, that a lot of the, this self-help books and all of these like living with purpose and all, you know, all, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's obsessed with ourself and we lose the real secret which is if you want to find your life you give it away you, like you, you were meant to live for something bigger than ourselves and as mother Teresa said uh, there's more important stuff than money you know at one point uh, a guy said to her um, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to do what you do he said this to mother Teresa and she said uh, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to do it either <laughs> the great great line you know yeah yeah I I have been a champion for the idea that uh, a fulfilling life and a joy-filled life comes out of connecting our, I say, God-given wisdom and talents and lived experience with serving the world. I think that's like the secret, you know, the secret combination is that we came here, we each came here with these beautifully unique bodies and minds and spirits and and we're each equipped to serve in a different way. And, and there's like this light that clicks on in us when we find that way that's aligned mm -hmm. with those gifts. There's just something incredible that happens where, yeah, you, you couldn't, you could not, I mean, I, I don't get paid for doing my podcast, but gosh, I love it. And it lights me up, you know, and there's yeah. something about sharing people's voices and their unique views and the way they're showing up in the world and inspiring others to do that, that I would do this every day, all day and never get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think there's, there's something like that's, that's what I know that people don't want to live penniless, but gosh, there's something so fulfilling and like that feeds you in a way that, that just income cannot. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a good way to identify your passion, right? Is what would you do uh, if you didn't mm. get paid for it? And 
in, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of us are doing work that we don't get paid for. But I, I think that um, sometimes the worst thing we can do is turn something into a job. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know? And uh, tell me more about <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get, let's yeah. tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think that. Um, I mean, you know, everyone needs resources to to um, get by, but um, there there comes a point, I think, where we also, rather than saying, how do I uh, accumulate more? You kind of say, how do I live off of less? You know, and part of that for, for me has been, you know, living in some sort of community and living it with, with um, uh trying to, as the quote on our wall says, live simply so that others may simply live, you know, to try to, to um, not have too much stuff. Uh, the more stuff we have, the more we have to maintain. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, jobs are, are kind of um, like that, uh, that we can end up um, missing the, the love of something because we, we've um, turned it into um you kind of suck the life out of it sometimes. So I, you know, I, I think of um, even people that are really, really talented. Like we had a guy that was a plumber that kind of moved in and said, just give me a list of everybody's uh, leaky faucets and toilets that need replaced. And he, you know, he went around for just fixing houses up in the neighborhood and uh, redid the plumbing in an entire house when he lived with us. And, um, he was a lifelong plumber, but it had been a long time since he had felt the love mm. <laughs> of of plumbing like that, I think, you know, yeah. and I think there's a lot of variations of that. You know, I, I met this group of young students that were robotics engineers and um, um, it was out in Western Pennsylvania, I think it was. And they, they said, uh, yeah, it's cool. You know, we got into robotics because it sounds cool you know it, it, you're making stuff and then they said but this little small group I met with they said we we began to hear about these kids in Afghanistan that were uh, sometimes almost being forced but they were being required to um, decommission landmines so to um, to detect and then to take them apart and a lot of times these would go off and they uh, these young kids would you know, of course, lose their hands and things like that. So they said, so we just, we decided, you know, we're going to design robots that can detect landmines. So then um, they can also make those inoperable. And if something goes wrong, it's a robot that blows up, not a kid or a dog or, you know, something else that might be used to detect these landmines. So they're, you know, they're kind of a different kind of robotics engineer. And I think that's where people's imagination is, endless you know and um thinking through how do we create clean water for people that's the number one cause of death in the world and we've sent people to the moon we can figure that out you know how do we use our minds to try to figure out how to de-escalate violence rather than to put billions and billions of dollars into war which is inevitably creating things like what we see you know in gaza right now is this like massive massive violence that's been funded and made in the USA. I mean, many of those bombs being dropped that are made just a couple hours from where I live. And you go, and if we had all of those brilliant minds that are trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to like 
build a world that's peaceful where everybody has the the, the this day their daily bread is scripture and, and you know as jesus taught us like let's figure out let's let's find those common aspirations and 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 figure out how to build a a, a more beautiful world yeah i i have to i have to ask um because i know i've heard over and over when i when i say the things that like my family and i choose to do to try to make a difference people say well you know is your tiny effort really really making any difference at all is it even worth, you know, your time, your energy, your sometimes your money um, to to do to make those shifts and changes? Is it worth it? Are we really making a difference? What do you say about that? Well, Mother Teresa's philosophy was: we're not called to do great things; we're called to do small things with great love. Mm-hmm. And what's what what really changes the world is not aspiring to do massive things but she you know her her idea was like what what matters is how much love we put into doing it and Mm -hmm. so like let's try to love one person well let's try to welcome one family that are refugees from somewhere let's do that well and then what becomes important is not numbers you know and Mm -hmm. how many mouths we fed or how many homes we built but the names and faces of relationships that are both transforming us and uh uh you know other people that we're we're in contact with uh and i also think that that is the way ironically that the world changes is by a lot of small things with great love being done and small acts of courage you know rosa parks deciding she's not going to move on the bus you know and a movement started out of that i mean i think a lot of things that actually have changed the world started with acts of courage that was contagious with acts of love and compassion that um uh were were really built out of uh you know that, that just gained momentum yeah. um i mean things like earth day and i mean so many of these things that we now recognize wow this is it shifted things uh it, it often began really small and a lot of Jesus's images for what he called the kingdom of God, the reign of God, or the dr- dream of God, they were uh, small things, you know, that you can't even see, like yeast. Mm-hmm. He said, we know yeah. we're to be like yeast in the bread, uh, we're to be like salt in the world that you can hardly even see, but it seasons the world, it preserves the world. The, um, uh, or as my friend Stanley Hauerwas says, we're meant to be like air fresheners in the in the restroom, you know. <laughs> Or leave off a beautiful fragrance in the world. Uh, Jesus also used the mustard seed, you know, as one of those images, not of a giant sequoia or redwood, but it was um, actually an invasive plant, you know, that, that would begin mm-hmm. to beautifully kind of spread. And that those are images that Jesus kind of offers us for how I think that the, the dream of God comes on earth. And, and as he also said, like, that is within us like we all have the seeds of that uh love within us as we live in the world Mm. although you know you say redwoods and that that has me thinking about those the i love i love nature and i love trees and i love to use them as as images of like pure living of things just showing up naturally um and i just think about like their root systems and the way that they they intertwine like they don't have the great depth to them, but they have this way of reaching out and working together. And like, if you were to dig down and see how shallow their roots are compared to how tall they are, and just think about the way that 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 
that whole like system works together. It's not just one being, but it's many as, as one. And that's like that community that, that you're building and, and that I got to kind of experience a little bit being there. It's, it's all of these interactions and these neighbors and, and each person doing their, their job and, and taking up their space and doing it with love and just doing what they're capable of doing. And then also, I think the other beautiful thing is, is allowing themselves to be supported when and where they need to. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of us miss out on that community because not that we're not willing to show up for others, but we're not willing to let others show up for us when we need. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure not busting on the redwood trees are magnificent, but I think Jesus's <laughs> point and 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 kind of offering us a contrast image is that I mean, in his time, it would have been called the cedars of Lebanon, right? Like these mm-hmm. this this idea that yeah. that um that they that God's reign comes like Caesar's, right? It comes from force, or it comes from violence, or it comes from power which is exactly the opposite of everything that Jesus taught, which is um, it's, it's actually rises up from the bottom that, that God is born as a brown skinned Palestinian Jewish refugee in a manger, you know, yeah. it came from a town where people said nothing good could come. So that contrast, uh, and also Dr. King knew that, you know, that, that, uh, all the ground is level at, at the foot of the cross, Dr. King said, you know, so that this idea that um, that that uh, hope rises from the bottom. And when we lift from the bottom, everybody uh, is lifted up. And that, that's a really different way, I think, uh, of thinking about how the world changes, um, how social change happens um, mm-hmm. is, is not just uh, kind of from trickle down power, but it's from the kind of uh, bottom up the swell at the ground of like things are not okay and you know mm-hmm. we've got to we've got to rethink how we live and how you know how we do policies yeah yeah i i i really treasure that you've made this such an approachable um call for people that if someone were to feel a tug hear this and feel a tug and go how can i show up just a little bit differently like, what could I do that aligns with with what either I'm already doing or what I feel my gifts are? You've made it so approachable and you've given people so many ways that they could kind of begin taking those steps that are that are small, but but mighty and full of love, I think. Mm. Yeah, so I really I really appreciate that because, you know, when someone looks at at entering a a nonprofit space or a philanthropic space, it seems kind of daunting. Um, but it doesn't have to be. It can be just a, a simple change or shift or or new thing. Yeah. And a lot of things, you know, we think that they're a big risk or they're uncomfortable or whatever. But I mean, it, uh, most of the things that I think about that have shaped me in my life have been things that were a little uncomfortable when I first did them or they were outside of my um, uh, familiar spaces, right? I mean, um, and I was thinking of this study that uh, was done of um, that they asked folks in the last kind of season of life. So maybe, you know, 90 years old, uh, 
what would you do differently looking back on your life? Mm -hmm. And the number one answer was take more risks. Mm. That's what uh, these elderly folks said as they look back on their life is that one of the the most common things they said is they would take more risks. And Mm. so, um, you know, I I think some of that, even for white folks, not, I'm sure, you know, not all of us are white, but those of us that are used to being in kind of majority white spaces, Mm. being in spaces where we're not a majority is, it might feel a little uncomfortable sometimes, but those are amazing life-giving spaces, uh, being a part of organizations we didn't start, uh, Mm. but that are led by, you know, leaders of color that are led by people that have been impacted by some of the things that we uh, care deeply about. Um, these are all, I think, important things. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it's it's that, that kind of idea, too, that um, we go in listening and learning and we uh, join those who uh, have been um, impacted by the injustices so it's not you know i think we're we're good at wearing t-shirts and having bumper stickers but um relationships are what changes it's what you know um where the action is and so i think we got to get in into those uh those places so yeah keep mm-hmm. doing it yeah it's it's funny you said that because i i just had this this pull to ask you know how do how do we begin showing up in spaces um, humbly and listening well versus, you know, coming in blazing and thinking that we're going to come make a big difference with our presence. You know, how do we, how do we come in and really sit down and take our, our place and listen? Um, because I've heard that, you know, we, especially I'm, I'm calling out, you know, people like me who, who have a lot of privilege on our shoulders, who show up and think that we're going to make a big difference. Um, and there, and, and, and what ends up happening is, is there's a little bit of a, you know, we bleed all over the place a little bit. Like we make, we make a mess of the place instead of listening well and, and showing up. And um, so how, how do we do that? How do we get started in these organizations or with people and do it well and listen well? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I think of the words of my friend, David Bailey, who said um, that, uh, I mean, he was particularly talking about race and, and uh, he was saying, especially I think of, of white folks, again, I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this or not, but he was, we were, he and I were talking about this. He said, white folks are good at showing up, um, uh, at, at, you know, preparing a table for other people to show up to. And he says, um, I know a lot of white folks that are also, or you might even say like just people of economic means that are really good at collaboration. So they're good at creating a table together, you know, having a potluck kind of thing. And he said, but what is a stretch for a lot of white folks and people of privilege is showing up to someone else's table, showing up to a, a meal or an organization that they haven't even funded or started or aren't on the board of or whatever. And just showing up to someone else's space is um, for some folks, it's a deliberate decision. I mean, we have to be intentional about that because it's easy to kind of not hide, but just be comfortable in 
familiar majority white spaces, you know? So I think those are all really important exercises for us, you know? And, and, um, and when I look at Jesus's, uh, call to relationship uh it's it's to be outside of those homogenous spaces and we're all like most comfortable around people who look uh, as as my friend says look like us eat like us and Mm -hmm. vote like us you know Mm -hmm. so let's kind of try to stretch ourselves and everybody wins yeah i love that yeah thank you um is there anything else that you feel would be valuable to share with people Oh, I'm no, I'm just glad to be a part of it. Thanks for having me as a guest. And, uh, you know, folks can follow our work. I'm on social media. It's, uh, you know, most of my handles are just my name and I'm on, I try to stay pretty active on the, uh, Instagram and Facebook mm-hmm. and the Twitter X world and threads now. Um, yeah. and red letter Christians is on all those. If folks are interested in our you know, gun transformations, you know, yes. you got to see the shop where we're yeah. turning guns into garden tools. This is one of our shovels made from a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's raw tools. So we get our name from war flipped backwards, uh, rawtools.org. And we're having a, I don't know when this will air, but a bunch of uh, holiday events that we're doing and stuff there. Um, and, you know, it is about transforming the, the, the kind of weapons but it's also about reimagining the world and uh we we see from you know um gaza to Mm -hmm. our our front door you know here in philly we've got a world with way too much violence so we're trying to reimagine that and uh Mm -hmm. yeah and if folks particularly are leaning into the christian faith uh but we're great collaborators too with folks uh of you know uh really all all different um face and no faith in particular at red letter christians but we get our name from yeah the the bibles that have the words of jesus in red mm-hmm. and uh um we like to say we're trying to live like jesus meant the stuff he said as, as you said bridget and gandhi when he was asked about christianity he said uh i love jesus i just wish the christians acted more like him mm. so we, we kind of resonate yeah. with that we know that uh there are lots of things that suffice or try to uh um camouflage themselves as as christianity but they don't look like jesus or sound like jesus or love like jesus so we're humbly aspiring to uh try to live out the the words in red yeah yeah that's beautiful yeah and i'm i'm going to um this will be tuesday december 5th that this will come out so very shortly here Cool. And I'm going to put some of that footage from uh, from my visit and from Raw Tools. So if people are listening on Spotify or other podcast platforms, jump on over to YouTube and check out the video. Um, I will add some of that B-roll footage in from, from the visit. And what I have to say is, as a side note, getting to actually take my hand to pounding a gun was quite the um, embodied visceral experience. Um, there's just something that like, you can't really put words around what happens inside when you get to actually experience doing that. So thank you again for that opportunity. It was, was really honestly life-changing it was. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a, a church word, the word sacrament, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, it's, it's a beautiful word because it means holy mystery. <sighs> and I think that's what we feel like. Um, I mean, you know, um, as we're transforming 
especially like the metal of an AR-15 and sometimes beating on it with people that have lost people they love and telling our stories to one another. There is something kind of uh, that's a holy mystery about it. It's also just a really great way to channel your anger and grief. (laughs) (laughs) Just beat the crap out of a gun, but yeah, so. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It is sacramental. Yeah, you're right. I I grew up Catholic. So I got, I had all of these experiences of the sacraments and, and that, you know what, that really captures it. It does for sure. So Shane, thank you again. I really appreciate you and the work you're doing and, and how you're showing up in the world. So thank you. Absolutely. See you soon. Thanks everybody for listening. Yeah. Thank you. again for joining us for this episode of Passionate Pursuits, powered by Corns Coaching, LLC. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now. This show is completely ad-free, so if you gain value from listening, please leave a review and share with a friend. I am so grateful for you.